What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the new Scottish Labour leader, and you ask us. Will Keir Starmer choose a new Shadow Chancellor? So we're going to take two You Ask Us questions this week because we've had so many questions come in and they've all been really interesting. So the first one is, with the election of yet another new leader, what are Labour's prospects in Scotland and can the party make a comeback without embracing pro-independence position? That's from Martin Warne. And sorry, I actually didn't give you guys a chance to say You Ask Us. <laughs> we can do it for the next one yeah exactly luckily treat. we have another opportunity <laughs> I, I to be honest think that at this point while you can construct a very elegant and I think persuasive argument that the Scottish Labour Party would long term have been in a better off position would not have been victim to the kind of political climate change that befell it in 2014 if it had had a more agnostic position on the constitution over a longer period of time and it had been able to be a party which contained some nationalists within it obviously it contained some nationalists within it among its voters right and one of the problems it had was that a a bunch of its voters who previously hadn't been pro-scottish independence became pro-scottish independence but also the ones who had been pro-scottish independence who had therefore be previously been content to vote for the labor party stop being so. And I think you can draw a really persuasive case that the Scottish Labour Party would have been better off if they had been a party not only of some pro-independence voters, but with, you know, just one in which MPs had a variety of positions on it. You can come up with a great electoral case and that would be a better universe to be in. But at this point, and I do think one of the problems a lot of Labour discourse tends to fall into is it the Labour Party first convinced itself that none of the other parties of the left are proper left-wing parties. And then it kind of convinces itself that other voters believe this to be the case as well. So let's say that I believe in either centre-left or, or left-wing uh, economics, and I am pro-independence. Well, if I'm on the left, I can vote for the Greens. If I'm on the centre-left, I can vote for the SNP. What is the function of the Labour Party in that part of the electoral marketplace? Yeah, and I, I thought the question we had a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, I mean, time moves so weirdly in lockdown, about, you know, why does the Green Party do so much better than the Lib Dems when you know their position on high speed two, et cetera, et cetera. So well because that is not the way that voters think about political parties. Yeah, that that just isn't isn't how they approach the question of, of, of who to vote for. And I just think similarly you can kind of go, oh well they'd be more competent than the SNP or 
there. Maybe they'd be more green than the Green Party. But I just think the offer than a Scottish Labour Party, which had a, a pro-independence vision, would be, hey, we're more divided than the SNP on the constitutional issue, and we have less environmentally friendly credentials than the Green Party, the clue being in the title. Why don't you vote for us? I kind of think, I mean, this is uh, obviously I've said this before, the hashtag that Richard Leonard defender has logged back on. Mm. <laughs> yeah, his, his, his approval ratings were not bad for the leader of a third party. I'm sorry, they just weren't. And and this idea that they were is actually a bigger part of the Scottish Labour Party's problem. Now, it's of course, it's entirely possible that when the electorate actually took a look at him, they would have gone, oh, I don't like him, right? Then he would have he would have had a Joe Swinson-style introduction to the electorate rather than Charlie Kennedy or Nick Clegg or a Tim Farron-style introduction to, to the electorate. Of course, his, his contact with the electorate did not end particularly well for him or the Lib Dems. The only way that I can see that they will revive in Scotland is if they can revive and form a government in England. Not least because I think, as we've seen with the, you know, still very good, but the slight reduction in support for the SNP and Scottish independence over the, the last couple of days, weeks and months, is that people's desire to, to reach for the escape route is in large part a commentary on the building that they're in. And I kind of think that if you're the Scottish Labour Party, what you really need to be able to do is point to an effective an effective Labour government in England. And really nothing else is going to fix that problem because they just need the size of the I want to be in the union and I want some kind of centre or centre-left prospectus to be bigger than it is currently because otherwise there is no reason for them to exist as a party. Yeah, I think I think I agree and disagree. So I suppose just to summarise for listeners who haven't been following the Scottish Labour leadership election, if not, why not? On the kind of crucial question that, that you were mentioning, Stephen, on the constitution and where Scottish Labour should position itself on independence, the position hasn't changed at all. Anna Sarwar, who is the newly elected leader, has actually the same position on this as Richard Leonard did, has the same position on this as Keir Starmer, the same position as Gordon Brown, which is that Labour doesn't want to have another Scottish independence referendum and is sort of unequivocally pro-union. And Monica Lennon, who ran against Anna Sarwar, was sort of still ultimately in in the same place in that she isn't in favour of independence and never will be and was very explicit about that. But she is much more open to the idea of holding a referendum and would like to see the party accommodate more people of that view. And like you were saying, Stephen, sort of allow space within the party for for people to have a range of views on that issue. So I think that like whether it makes a difference, I think the election of Anna Sarwar probably could make a little bit of a difference. I think because in terms of the fundamental analysis there, I think I broadly agree that Labour will do better in Scotland when it's doing better in England. But I don't know if necessarily that means, you know, a Labour majority in England or Labour doing much better electorally Maybe that could happen sooner if Labour was seen to just be polling really well in England. And so even if you were years out from an election that could actually change things, if Keir Starmer looked like a leader in Whitting and he was 20 points ahead and that seemed like within within grasp, maybe that would also change the mood in Scotland. But I kind of agree that having having interviewed Richard Leonard after there was that big panic in the party over his approval ratings, without being unfair to him or or rude, 
I kind of feel like two things can be true that like it's not really his fault that as a third party in Scotland Scottish Labour weren't doing great but also that he he could have been a better leader and so it's clearly not a bad thing to replace the leader for arguably a, a better one in that that isn't so much about his his personal politics he's sort of quite politically close to Jeremy Corbyn but it's not really so much about that as just I think the the force of personality needed to be leader of of a party like he's a he's a really thoughtful politician with like this huge hinterland and like this huge deep underpinning in in socialist politics going back decades but I didn't feel like he particularly wanted to be leader and and even just when you interview politicians some of them kind of take the reins in the interview more than others and sort of like I think with the best politicians you you get this feeling that like you could ask them anything you could ask them what their favorite color was and they would end up hitting all of their key messages and getting and like and doing it incredibly charmingly and very interestingly so that as a journalist you would you would have everything that you wanted you would have an interesting interview and they would have put across everything that they wanted to put across and I just didn't feel like he he did that quite so much even though his analysis on Labour's position on the union and so on was like I say sort of broadly similar to to other Scottish Labour figures and quite well thought through even if it doesn't make a huge difference clearly having a maybe a slightly more compelling leader might make a, a little bit of difference that that's that's my view I, I think this is slightly influenced by the fact that I've followed Monica Lennon for longer and I know a bit more about her than Anna Sarwar but in a way I think that her case I think was that Labour could be a bit more in the spotlight by being seen as a more campaigning party or something and because she single-handedly led the campaign for free period products in in schools in Scotland and that has you know achieved global recognition and she's sort of very good on LGBTQ rights and I think that the kind of the the image that she projected of Scottish Labour could have been a really good one but I think maybe Anna Sarwar won't, won't be that different in that regard but yeah, so I think maybe it won't make a huge difference, but it certainly won't make things any worse. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those really interesting tests, isn't it? It's not just about the sort of how how you approach an election like this as a third party that still does have delusions of of being a second party. It's it's also not just a test for how much a different personality in leadership and can have an effect on on your party's ratings but it's also a test of how do you actually oppose the things that many people will be unsatisfied with in in the country so you know i think in his in his speech when he won he spoke about how voters in in scotland had not had not had the the scottish labour party that they deserve and he followed that up by speaking about rising injustice and inequality and there have been a lot of social problems really enduring and stubborn social problems in Scotland under the SNP, which it seems that the party of government hasn't been able to solve. And also, they are always able to sort of place the blame on the on the government in Westminster for things that voters are unsatisfied with and that the opposition parties highlight. So how does Anasawa, because it's very difficult for him to place Labour as, as, as an alternative to, to the SNP, how does he use those kind of issues, those sort of social issues, 
to give encouragement to voters that Labour could be the party to solve them. Because we know that one of the reasons why, and it's not just about independence, we know that one of the reasons why the Labour Party has struggled in Scotland and, and you know, had a sort of apocalyptic um, decline of support in Scotland, as we've seen in, in the Westminster elections was because they did take uh, their Scottish constituencies for granted. And there was a sense that more should be being done for the fabric of the country by, you know, the, the, the politicians that had represented them for so long. So how does he persuade people, not only that these issues are more important issues to vote on than independence or, or however you feel about devolution, but also that Labour is the party to fix them? I mean, the Labour Party has been in opposition there for a long time now and um, and in Westminster too. So hasn't had a chance to prove that it can do the things for the for the public realm and for, for inequality. And, you know, Scotland has this terrible and enduring problem with drug deaths as well. How does he prove that Labour can be the party to fix those problems? And how does he make it a priority for voters to vote for? And it's and it's something that I think that the Labour Party is grappling with in Westminster as well, because there's there's this ongoing question of how you frame these kind of issues with inequality and, and poorly funded public services so that it energises enough voters to help you electorally if you can convince people that you're the party to fix them. So I think I'll be interested in watching whether or not what kind of language, first of all, he uses to address those issues and whether or not it is something that he, he can exercise more voters to care about and to, and to prioritise. I basically agree with all of that. I, I just need to launder my own reputation here, which is, I'd like to make it clear, I don't disagree with anything you say, Alva, about Richard Leonard's various difficulties as a leader, or indeed actually the, the choice before Scottish Labour with the two people they had. And I think there's something weird thing, and I think this is a problem in a lot of political parties have and a lot of political commentary has is a realization that lots of these jobs are quite different and regardless of the fact that i think that anna sawar and richard Lend are right on how they should tackle the constitutional question and i don't think monica Lennon's solution is the right one starting from the position of the scottish labor party now she is unquestionably in my view the the Scottish Labour MSP, who has done the most to demonstrate that she actually does have the skill set for a leading a third party effectively in Parliament, which is quite different from the skills of being a good leader of the opposition, where you have to, you know, be across the whole whole swathe of things. You know, you struggle to be relevant, but you the unique difficulty you have is you certainly don't struggle to struggle for attention. It's just not it's often not positive. The metric, and I guess it's one of the problems third parties have, right? Because no one wants to come out and say, oh, look, Ming Campbell's approval rating is fine for someone in the third party, but his, his PMQ's questions aren't good. He doesn't come across well on his feet. He, he, he looks about a thousand years old and we just need to need to get a younger leader in. So instead they had all of that, oh, you know, his approval ratings, oh, this, yada, yada, yada. And then they switched him for Clegg, whose approval ratings were not better in 2007, were not better in 2008, were were not better in 2009, but I think unquestionably Ming Campbell would not have been able to do what Nick Clegg did in the TV debates in 2010. I think it's far from clear that the electoral cost, if there was one, of having an English leader for the Scottish Labour Party, someone in the Scottish Labour Party who'd been quite worried about that when he became leader, said to me a couple of months ago, oh, well, at least we know that's not a factor. And I just said, Half of Scottish voters don't know who this person is. There's absolutely no indication that, that that price is not still to come. And But I think that speaks to the central problem, which is they've explicitly, okay, not 
overwhelmingly, but they have rejected the approach of let's let's actually be a third party. Right. That was in many ways the most important part of the Monica Lennon pitch. It was let's be a third party because we are one. And instead they've accepted the let's be Scottish Labour again. We're back. And in odd way, the problem with Anna Sarwar's pitch is the problem with Richard Lennon's pitch was the problem with Jim Murphy's pitch, which is essentially all of them turning up and going, you've wanted us to change and oh boy, we've changed. And that approach hasn't worked and I'm not convinced it will work. Although I think Alvar is exactly right that if we had a situation where the Labour Party was miles ahead in the polls, doing really well in local elections, that would, I think, contribute to a change of climate even before the Labour Party in England was in office. It's the question of how you project the message that Anish was talking about, of sort of you have this analysis of these like these social problems that haven't been addressed by the SNP and that the Conservative Party is not going to be challenging from the left, even if it is challenging them in its own way. It's that argument that Scottish Labour has been trying to own under all of its different leaders. And clearly, like the best way of doing that is the the Monica Lennon approach. Like you do want as a third party or, you know, in her case, as a random Labour MSP, you do want to be in a situation not just where you achieve, you know, global recognition for your campaigning on something but you do want a situation where Nicola Sturgeon has to you know thank you for all of your great work on something and that you that the Scottish government's position on something has changed because of campaigning by Scottish Labour because ultimately even though you know Nicola Sturgeon handled that like the the consummate politician that she is Ultimately, you don't want over and over again Scottish Labour to be successfully campaigning for things that you are then forced to introduce that weren't introduced by your own government. You don't want to be seen to be on the back foot with those things. And I think that kind of campaigning third party that finds these areas of consensus that everyone thinks are a great idea, that's clearly the way you you build Scottish Labour's reputation as a third party. We have no idea that Anna Sarwar won't borrow bits of that since it clearly worked really well. That was one of the first positive stories for Scottish Labour in the news in quite a while when when Monica Lennon brought those changes through. But yeah, clearly that's the approach as a third party that, that they need to be taking. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our second question from our listeners is, will Starmer replace Annalisa Dodds? And if so, 
would that be advantageous to Labour's election prospects? So this is a question referring to the shadow chancellor. Alva, why, why do you think we've received a question asking this today? So this is the big discourse with everyone mm. sad and alone at home in lockdown. Their minds have, have turned to the shadow chancellor. And we've kind of seen this since Annalisa Dodds was appointed as Keir Starmer's shadow chancellor. There, have, there has been talk about how effective she is at shadowing one of, if not the most popular politicians at the moment in Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I'm interested to to know what the two of you think on this, because um, I think that there's some usefulness in this discussion. And then a lot of it is just pe- like a symptom of people being bored. I have no idea whether Keir Starmer has any plans to replace Annalisa Dodds. I've certainly heard nothing to that effect. But clearly, that's not what the question is so much about. It's the wider question of how is she doing in her role and are people positioning themselves to be considered as potential replacements for her job? And then, you know, and would that actually work? So there was a an interesting column by a commentator by from another publication as sort of suggesting that, that various people are on manoeuvres for Annalisa Dodds's job, among them Lisa Nandy and Rachel Reeves and Yvette Cooper. Um, <laughs> the evidence for this being that she retweeted a video of her and Ed Balls discussing the gravy on that show that that you like Anish that we discussed the other week best celebrity home cook that's sort of proof that she's you know showing that she has another side to her personality so she must be gunning for for the top job but I think that there actually is some truth to the suggestion that like clearly some people are on maneuvers like I don't think I'm saying anything that people couldn't infer from just watching politics themselves like someone like Rachel Reeves is plainly on maneuvers to something I mean there's there's nothing to suggest that that is for Annalisa Dodds's job in particular but she has really made a lot of impact with her role on on corruption and outsourcing has really positioned herself within the shadow cabinet as someone more senior than the initial appointment would have suggested and has proven to be very effective in that role. So cl- she's clearly one of the more thrusting members of the shadow cabinet. But, you know, does that just mean that she wants to be very good in her current role, make herself indispensable? Does that mean that she would like to be leader one day does that mean that she would hope to be shadow chancellor does it mean that she wants to have a future post Keir Starmer like you know there's no actually way of inferring that it's anything to do with Annalisa Dodds but I think that that's that's sort of the accurate reading of of Rachel Reeves and then I thought there was another point in that column which it pointed out that Lisa Nandy had also recently written a piece which was ostensibly about foreign policy and Joe Biden but it was really about economics and I thought fair enough that is not a bad analysis that she is you know intervening more on the economy I don't I don't know if that's necessarily proof that she wants the shadow chancellor job but it's not it's not an unfair inference from that one piece I suppose it's hard to look into the hearts of Annalisa Dodds's colleagues to know whether they want her job and are kind of posturing for it But yeah, there definitely is this sort of ongoing discussion about 
whether she is doing well enough in the job. I kind of understand it. I think it really, I, I think a lot of it is boredom and the fact that she wasn't that well known when she took on the role and it, and it has just been a challenge establishing herself. I think maybe in, in little ways, I am aware of her struggling to get a fair hearing it's it's not really anything at her end it's more at the other end that I feel like she she makes the case where she says the things but they don't necessarily always land and or they they aren't sort of taken on board in coverage of the debate and so for example the current position on whether there should be tax rises or spending cuts at the moment is like very much backed up by sort of economic orthodoxy and we've talked about that before on the podcast that like loads of big economics institutions all basically agree with her analysis that this is not the time for any form of austerity because you don't want to choke off the recovery I just had this feeling over the weekend you know as we prepare for the budget that she she makes the case I don't know if she always makes it 100% as well as she could but like she she, she makes the case I think quite clearly Yet I have this feeling of it not being taken seriously by some people as though it's a huge problem that Labour can't say when it would have tax rises when Rishi Sunak also doesn't know apart from things he's doing in this budget he doesn't know what his policies are going to be in 2023 and he was clear about that when he was interviewed about it at the weekend so the idea that Labour should be able to foresee what the economic circumstances will be in a few years time is just kind of mad but the idea that this is a big sort of failing on the part of the shadow chancellor I find a little bit frustrating so I I actually do understand where some of the discourse is coming from because I think it is a conundrum sometimes looking at coverage of Annalisa Dodds and the shadow treasury team's positions on things and feeling like they aren't given the hearing that they would want but I'm not convinced that A, there are any plans to replace her or B, that it would make very much difference. Yeah, we had some really interesting polling of Labour voters by the polling company Redfield and Wilton, who very kindly gave us some exclusive questions to ask them ahead of the budget. And it was quite interesting, the answers that people had given in terms of Annalisa Dodds and their feelings towards her, because... In terms of approval, the highest result came for neither approve nor disapprove at 44% and the approve was 28%. And when she was compared with Rishi Sunak, actually, he he had a higher approval rating among them. So Labour voters who voted Labour in the last election said that 34% of them said that he at the moment makes a better chancellor than she would. She got 28%. But the most important thing is that 38%, which was the highest, said they didn't know who would make a better chancellor. And in terms of the approval ratings, the highest was 44% neither approve nor disapprove, which just suggests that people or Labour voters in this case, in this poll, they they just don't know enough about her. They probably don't know who she is or they they don't know what she stands for or, or what the kind of things that she's announcing have been. And they haven't seen her in her role as shadow chancellor enough to come to a conclusion. Whereas Rishi Sunak probably has more name recognition, mainly because of his role during the pandemic. He's He's been in those, I think the most important part were those very early press conferences when he was often at those briefings announcing the kind of support that businesses and, and workers would need through the pandemic. So I think that name recognition probably gives him that little bounce above her. 
So I think the issue probably is less that she's saying the wrong things or not giving enough detail on on certain economic policies, but that perhaps she's just not um, prominent enough. And it's quite difficult to blame the shadow minister in question for that, because how much airtime and, and how prominent you are in the shadow cabinet depends on how the shadow cabinet is run. So it depends on, I think, of course, your own team and, and how much they they can sort of position on your behalf. But it also depends on on the leadership and, and how well certain media slots and also uh, announcements are delegated. And my feeling is that the Labour Party have been announcing a lot of different analyses on particularly the government's failings in terms of support for businesses and things. There's there's some really great stuff on how, you know, every time Rishi Sunak delayed saying furlough would be extended, there were more redundancies. You know, all of this stuff is quite clever sort of research to do. But I always think it's always being communicated by more than one shadow minister at once. So I can't remember what the actual analysis was a while ago, but there was something that Ed Miliband was talking about in terms of how businesses had been affected, maybe how businesses would be affected under the tier system when they just announced that. But that was actually originally announced by Annalisa Dodds, I think. So there's always like a little bit of, of murkiness about who's supposed to be out there batting for what line. And I wouldn't put that necessarily on the individual as a fault as a fault of their own I would put that as a sort of management failing but I do think something along those lines is happening here because she's had you know a number of set pieces to oppose Rishi Sunak and kind of build her profile but it hasn't I don't think happened so far it'll be interesting to see obviously what happens this week but it might come down to Stephen often what you say is that, that they are just announcing too many things and maybe too many of them are repeating the same announcements the repeating is one of the things that they're doing well. I, I thought it was heartening, for example, in, in Annalise Dodds' speech to Bloomberg this morning, there were no new announcements. There was just a reiteration of, I, I think, their two central points, which is, one, we do not need a fresh round of, of austerity, whether that is spending cuts in the form of the cuts to welfare or, or tax rises in the form of the planned the planned and voted increases in corporation tax or the fact that because of various decisions making, essentially like local authorities have been told you can go bust or you can raise council tax, right? And their new sort of quite dull, but I think actually quite important attack line, which is to find as many opportunities as possible. You know, John Healy did it in his sort of big speech about labour defence policy, which is otherwise sort of a classic example of, oh, here's a speech for the stakeholders so the stakeholders feel that, that they've been listened to and but will up then has always kind of been done, in which went the government has been in power for 10 years. For a lot of our listeners, go, well, yeah, of course the government has been in power for 10 years. But a large part of the success in 2019 was their ability to go, hey, look, we're all new, we're all different. And I think it's actually a good thing that the shadow chancellor's job is not to, to, to necessarily say new things. I mean, so I'm afraid I struggle to be polite increasingly about people who ask this question. Because I'm afraid I think it reflects a lack of at least one of the following things. A lack of memory, a lack of judgment, a lack of political understanding, or fundamentally a lack of intelligence, right? So in terms of a lack of memory, right, I would just love one of these articles to at least acknowledge that in 2006, 2007, these were all questions George Osborne continually faced. Oh, he's a lightweight. Oh, you know, he doesn't really compare to Gordon Brown. Oh, he's not as serious as, as this cerebral Alistair Darling. And, and ditto, these were problems Gordon Brown had in the run-up to 1997 because the Chancellor spends money 
and also is actually one of the few politicians who people tend to have heard of. Equally, of course, this is one of the reasons why I say I think it betrays a lack of political understanding, is I am, to be frank, perplexed as to why quite so many people who cover politics, and including people who cover Keir Starmer's Labour Party, have decided that they think that Keir Starmer's political aim is for people to have heard of the Shadow Chancellor. You know, someone who who, uh, who similarly has a, a political podcast doing the, oh, you know, she hasn't said anything interesting. It's like, well, why do you think that anyone who works for Keir Starmer thinks that their Shadow Chancellor's job is to say anything interesting? It's quite clear, and you can criticise this as an over as a overarching strategic approach, is Labour, now non-threatening, we're really reassuring, you know, kind of let's get good write-ups in the FT about how, you know, we're moving to the centre, even though actually the centre is moving towards us. Yeah, we're moving to the centre. Oh, you know, I've got a nice write-up for my MACE lecture in the Financial Times. And crucially, I'm ideologically aligned with the principle, which is is actually the essence of any successful shadow chancellor and and leader of the opposition partnership. Because kind of everyone else can do the heavy lifting, and indeed they should. I think one of the problems is that it is not the role of individual shadow ministers to do all of their message carrying in the way that it is the role of the chancellor to stand up and go, here is the budget. The budget will define the strategic lines on which the government will fight the next election. But that's something the leader of the opposition does, both in that they respond to the budget, but also it's everything Keir Starmer says and does on the economy that creates the point of contrast with Rishi Sunak. The role of the shadow chancellor is to be as politically aligned to the chancellor as possible. So to kind of come back around to the question, I think it is unlikely that Keir Starmer will replace Annalise Dodds because I think it is unlikely that Keir Starmer will change his strategy. What I find frustrating about a lot of this, the way this question is raised, is that people think they're asking a different question to the one they're asking, which is your shadow chancellor, it's not like you go, oh, we need a goal, let's throw on another striker, or let's have someone who's like, you know, who's a bit pacier because their left back looks vulnerable. Your shadow chancellor is integral to your political strategy. So to change your shadow chancellor is to change your strategy. And also, if you're you're Keir Starmer, any of the names... Is to change your political positioning in quite a significant way. Yeah, I think Rachel Reeves would be a fantastic shadow chancellor, but Rachel Reeves did not endorse Keir Starmer for the Labour leadership. That is quite an important clue, I would suggest, <laughs> that these two people have different political priorities. Yvette Cooper is hugely qualified to be shadow chancellor. But again, Keir Starmer did not endorse Yvette Cooper to be Labour leader in 2015, which I would again argue is a clue that there may be some political differences there. And these things actually, they re- those things really do matter. Whereas, I mean, ultimately, people haven't heard of her because they haven't heard of the Shadow Chancellor. We shouldn't forget that Philip Hammond was a pointless answer shortly before he became, you know, became Chancellor and indeed had a low profile for most of the time that he was Chancellor. It just isn't the role of, of the person in that job to do that. And this is why I say I think a lot of these analyses just seem to lack a kind of basic intelligence about what it is that political parties seek to do. I am just in general finding it fascinating how much we as an industry seem to be making exactly the same cognitive mistakes as we made uh, analysing David Cameron in the sort of 2006 period. Where So basically every opposition leader has experiences a kind of Boeing in their approval rating of the kind that Keir Starmer is currently experiencing, the kind David Cameron experienced, the kind Tony Blair experienced, but also, crucially, every leader of the opposition who has gone on to lose has also, about this point in their leadership, 
suffered a kind of steady falling off in their ratings and then a slight recovery. And I think the basic reason for that is what happens is, is at first people go, oh, there's a new leader of the opposition. They're all new. They're all different. They're changing the party in, in new ways, how exciting they are. And then after about eight months, that stops being interesting. But the fact that people are angry, so I mean, on, on, to take tax, it's, it's really funny, I think, to compare with some of the reaction to when they were still doing their share the proceeds of growth stuff. So this was earlier a camera where their, their big thing, correctly, in my view, was they wanted to tell voters that the state would was safe in the hands of the Tories. And then a Conservative government need not mean huge and painful cuts to public spending. Obviously, all of this is hilarious in hindsight. They faced huge opposition from within the party. And what happened was in the 2005 front of 2006, they faced huge opposition in the party, but they got lots of positive headlines about the fact they were changing the party. Then you get to October of 2006, about the point that we're at now in, in the life of Keir Starmer and Elise Dodd's leadership project. And people are suddenly going, oh, what, why are they saying this on tax? I don't understand this position on tax. Some people in the shadow cabinet are very angry in this on this position in tax. Now, I think there are a number of reasons to believe that Keir Starmer may not be able to go on to win the next election, not least the electoral position, despite the fact his approval ratings are consistent with someone who could do that, not least the fact they do still announce too many policies. They have failed, I think, to establish a clear vibe, all of that kind of stuff. But none of that is about who the shadow chancellor is. None of it would improve if the shadow chancellor changed, and it just is a just like it's just a huge category error into to think that the identity of the shadow chancellor would matter. If you think, for example, that Labour needs to be really reassuring and it should have a very very straight laced man, which I think there's actually a really strong case case to be make to be making. I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I think it's a much stronger case than going. I know what he should do is have someone who I've heard of who doesn't have the same politics as the leader because apparently I slept through the Ed Miliband, Ed Balls era. What would be brilliant would be for Labour to go through that again. You would then end up with someone, you know, so he goes, politics are broadly aligned with the principle, man who wouldn't do anything bad, are undeniably qualified to do the role. You would either have Ed Miliband, which would be a change of strategic approach because his tone would be very different, even though politically it wouldn't be that big of a shift. Or you end up with someone like Stephen Timms, that is a serious suggestion, right, for the role. And I say this as someone who is personally, I, I'm fairly certain I would agree more with the decisions of a, of a Rachel Reeves Shadow Chancellorship than a, a Stephen Timms one or, or, or the present one. But it's not a serious suggestion to go, oh, do you know, the, would things be better if the Labour leader picked someone who did not, who either he did not want to be leader of the <laughs> Labour Party or did not want him to be leader of the Labour Party? That would not be a good idea. I think you're right, Stephen, that some of this is about Annalisa Dodds being a woman because we've never had a female chancellor and she's the first woman shadow chancellor. And I just have this feeling that like we've we've got used just about to the idea of women being politicians and just about to some kinds of women being leaders of their parties with loads of conditions attached, which we've talked about before. But I think that there are specific issues for women around establishing economic credibility that the only women that we think of as contenders for the role apart from the current shadow chancellor and Lisa Dodds herself are Rachel Reeves and Yvette Cooper who have you know put in a lot of legwork to establish themselves as people who aren't just you know 
competent politicians, but who have economic competence, because that is something that not all female politicians try to cultivate. Like economics is so gendered masculine that still, even though there's sort of more gender parity in other parts of journalism, economics journalism is like very male dominated. Like as an academic field, it's really, really male dominated. I have like, I have like women friends who are economists who just have horror stories. And even like the the male economists I know sort of talk about that as a particularly sexist part of academia. And so I just think that that's a unique challenge that Annalisa Dodds faces as a pretty new politician, like new into parliament and new to front bench politics, that people just don't instinctively think of a woman as competent on this kind of thing. Like they don't necessarily trust this like former this brilliant former academic who's also a woman they don't trust her talking about economics the same way in the same way that they would a random man who read one book on on economics I do just think that you can even see from like mean twitter comments about her that people do just like make snap assumptions about who they trust on things to do with money and business and I don't really know what the solution on that is I think that part of it is literally that journalists have a duty to point out how smart she is. And I think that it's mad to me that more don't because that's part of Rachel Reeves' success in establishing herself as a credible possible future shadow chancellor or shadow chancellor that like everyone knows she's a former Bank of England economist and incredibly smart. But I still feel like there's often a quite patronizing tone in the coverage of Annalisa Dodds that really bothers me. And then every so often they remember that even though she's like incredibly nice and they don't know her personally, she is a former academic. She is really smart, but it doesn't like trickle through into, into all the coverage of her. I find it hard to watch her delivering a speech or, or on TV without kind of thinking about that unique challenge that she faces that I'm sure she's aware of. And also, the, the, you know, the thing about the sort of Yvette Cooper-Rachel Reeves comparison, I, actually, I mean, I think at the start of the pandemic, middle of the pandemic, I did write in my politics column that precisely one of the challenges that Annalise Dodds has is if you're the shadow chancellor, you continually have to spend as much time as you can basically talking to economics correspondents and to a lesser extent political journalists in a kind of like, hey, guys, please remember that I am, in fact, intelligent. And then only the fact that my job, my job turns me into a spare part means that I am seen as kind of irrelevant. And you can't really do that in the pandemic. But the thing I find fascinating, as well as about the kind of, you know, oh, they would be much better off with Yvette Cooper and Rachel Reeves, is I'm old enough to remember when Rachel Reeves was being denigrated all the time for being boring, Mm. including, you know, I was about to say famously, you know, it caused a lot of discourse (laughs) on Twitter for about a week at the time. When the then producer of Newsnight, Ian Katz, accidentally tweeted instead of DMing, oh yeah, good programme, a shame about boring, snoring Rachel Reeves. Now, one of the things that I think is slightly odd is that I don't think that any of the things that caused him to say that have changed. It's just that people have kind of decided that somehow it's the role of the shadow chancellor to, you know, kind of go around, I don't know, doing cartwheels, being exciting. Maybe she's just been around for long enough now that people have have noticed that Rachel Reeves is quite smart. But in some ways, because I think Rachel Reeves would, yeah, as I said, do a brilliant job at it and also would do a fairly good job as a like-for-like replacement on most issues. I do think eventually the fact that they're not ideologically aligned on, on central questions, clearly, the leadership election was only last year, guys. Like, 
it happened, would, I think, become a bit of a problem. But one of her strengths is, you know, she does have that same, I wouldn't do anything bad. I'm very steady. I'm clearly very well qualified. And I do think it is partly, as you say, there's this issue of how do you do this job effectively as a woman? There's this issue of being shadow chancellor is a really difficult job because everyone continually writes you off. And I do think there's an added issue of kind of, um, yes, because obviously it's coming up to his, his first year in the job. I remember when Rishi Sunak was appointed and I and some other journalists yeah, wrote pieces going, actually, look, this guy is a serious figure yeah, with big ideas of his own. He's not to be written off or taken lightly. I mean, so in my first column on him in the NS, I compared him to Nigel Lawson. And some of the comments from other journalists about how, you know, this was like blatant source cultivation or, uh, you know, kind of, oh, this was, you know, actually Rishi Sunak was a cipher, was what they meant was, I haven't really heard of this guy and therefore he can't be that impressive. And I think that there are two politicians who have very similar initial challenges, right? Neither Rishi nor Annalise Dodds are the kind of person who, visually at least, people associate with the role of being shadow chancellor. Obviously, both of them are hugely qualified for that role. But the only way to, for, and you know, there's Katie Balls wrote a brilliant piece in The Eye about Rishi Sunak's sort of early rise early on. And there's an incredibly sneering write-up of it in Playbook that day. And where ultimately what has proved those people wrong has been Rishi Sunak being able to do the job. And I come back to something that, so George Osborne continually faced these same questions. And eventually what happened was is that David Cameron brought in Ken Clark as shadow business secretary. And one of George Osborne's allies basically said to me, he's like, George, look, this is humiliating. How can you possibly stand this? And George Osborne said, well, I have to, I will have to become chancellor to be taken seriously as chancellor. There is no shortcut around that. And he's like, and if Ken being around helps with that, then that's fine. And I think that broadly is the challenge Rishi Sunak faced when he first became chancellor. He had to stand up and do a budget before people went, hey, this Stanford guy is pretty smart. Who knew? And the difficulty for any shadow chancellor, and I think the second that this change, which, as I said, I don't think will happen unless Keir Starmer wants to change his overall strategy. Yeah, I think the second this change were to happen in that hypothetical universe, people would suddenly go, oh, she's a bit boring, isn't she? Oh, she's not very interesting. The only way to gain credibility as chancellor is to become chancellor. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.